Hi, and welcome to. Let me try that again because I did. Uh, I did the big breathing that we always do at the beginning. <gasps> welcome to the. All right. Hi, and I popped my mouth. Hi, and welcome to classical stuff you should know. A clap plop. <laughs> this is a podcast about classical about stuff. Well, by dudes who know some classical stuff. Yep. That work at a classical school and want to bring that to you. Oh yeah, listener. so I have bad intros, is what you're saying? No, I'm saying all of our intros oh. are bad because yeah, and I'm gonna intro yours, Graham, in a second. Mm-hmm. It's gonna go really poorly. I mean, in a week. In a week because we only record it's these magic. weekly. Sorry, mine Whoa. is has been going great. <laughs> Nailed it. Right. It's better than started. last week's. It's better than the. <laughs> it is. Hello and disagree. better. Wow, sorry. <laughs> anyway, I, my name is AJ Hannenberg. I teach ninth grade English, senior English, and senior thesis at Veritas Academy. I am joined by Thomas Magby. Howdy. Who does studenty things with yep. the students? Yep. And Graham Donaldson. Hi. Who does pretty much all the same things I do, but he teaches tenth instead of ninth. I teach. Um, and he's vaguely my boss in rhetoric. I, I teach the Canadian Appreciation class. Yeah, that is Canadian my studies. Yeah. We how, do Canadian studies. How did the uh, maple... D- does everyone get A's? <laughs> Ooh. I had a revelation it's the other day about a. Canada. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Well, you know the joke about how Canada got its name. No. See, it's like, all right, guys, so we need to like think up of a, of a name for our country. So, uh, oh, man, let's just, let's just start thinking about some letters. So we need like a C, eh? And then like maybe let's get like an N, eh? And then, oh, we definitely need a D, eh? Wait a minute. Canada. <laughs> That's perfect. That's good. Anyway, that's part of your history. Bad joke. Cool. Hey, yeah. Great so joke. we are a podcast yeah. that <laughs> talks about classical stuff. We're trying to bring the classical world to you, make it accessible to the layman, and just introduce the you know the Western canon, the story of who we are and where we came from to everybody. Today, Thomas Magby will be Howdy. leading us through a book about not being able to read good. Uh, I think it was illiteracy, right? The blessings of illiteracy. This is so good. Yeah. Uh, so I was this ma- pot. Sorry, no. I was, I was going to say. Fine. Oh, <laughs> uh, you go. Hey. You go. So I was going to dedicate this podcast to a student of mine, Brady, who consistently says, "I'm illiterate." <laughs> In class, it's great. That's awesome. Uh, I was commenting before this podcast about how unhelpful my answers to, hey, what are you going to talk about are. So sorry about that. Uh, a few weeks ago, my answer was, oh, I'm going to talk about adequatio, to which they looked at me and said, gesundheit. Um, so, yep, yep, and it's a magic spell, apparently. So, yeah, today I'm going to be um, talking about a book called The Life of the Mind, and I'm going to be focused on uh, Chapter 5, on the Consolations of Illiteracy Revisited, which is a great title. Revisited? So he was illiterate. Became literate. Oh, well, there's a story behind that name, and you'll get that story, okay, Mr. AJ Hannenberg. Mm-hmm. Um, so, AJ, when you were doing your intro, something you talked about um, how this podcast is about making the classics accessible. I thought that was a really good point, uh, and is almost entirely what this uh, episode is going to be about. And so, uh, this is—I don't even know why I do quiz show all the time with you all, but uh, there are two ways that I'm thinking of that we can access the classics. Can you all think of what these ways are? Read them. Read listen them. to them. <laughs> you sound like a robot. Yeah. Taste so I think so. Like, read, yep. Taste them. Yep. I just like to pick up the Odyssey and. Bad, bad, bad. Did I just win two points? No, you won one. Because so you're like just read um, them, read them directly. Mm-hmm. So so um, uh, absorb them. My, my my boss my boss Troy Shuknick likes to make fun of me because when I started here a year and a half ago, I had, I had picked up a copy of Susan Weisbauer's The Well 
educated mind, I think is the, the well trained mind? mind. No, well educated mind. Oh, the second one. Well, yeah, well trained is for students. Well educated is for like you as a person. And so, um, well educated goes through these like different lists of books to read in these different traditions. And so, there's one on like the tradition of um, um, story uh, stories about. Uh, 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 epic journeys. And so the first one on that is Don Quixote. I'm still working on Don Quixote a year and a half later. So anyway, so one way to access a classic is to read it itself. And that one's about a donkey, right? It's about a donkey named Hote. Yeah. And um, there's actually, there's a noble steed. Uh, and his pal Roc Shrek. Rocinante? <laughs> yep. And it's all about how they have emotions like onions. <laughs> yeah. and oh, it's, Can we stop now? <laughs> nope. Never. We'll never stop. Okay. So um, so one way is just to read them directly. But what, what is another way that we can access Blooming classics? Onion. Blooming onions. Um, if you live Culturally? in a culture that that is steeped in it, you absorb it just through like the mm -hmm. cultural liturgies of your life. Oh, that's good. Uh, my much more basic answer was just kind of like, we access them through someone else telling them, hmm. telling us about them. But that's what you're saying. Mm -hmm. So listen. Yeah, there it is. So I won two points. <laughs> no, Graham gets 100 points. No, AJ gets that was my point. So yeah. read, Graham, and read and listen. You're in first oh. place with 100 points. Mm -hmm. AJ, you have won. Uh, you'll get there. Do we play me. the Canadian national anthem when I win? Like, uh, like yep. in the Olympics? Yep, naturally. Yes. Yep, that's... We're above you. <laughs> <laughs> up to the north. <laughs> It's really cold up here, and we've got some moose. Yep, Canadian national anthem. Wear America's hat. <laughs> <laughs> You're very proud Can of that. Can we move on? <laughs> nope, we never will. So two ways, either reading them directly, or you hear about them from someone else, um, or you have a guide. Uh, I, I like the idea of it being culture as that guide that's so steeped in it that you just kind of learn that as you grow up. Um, but someone who has been helpful in introducing me to the classics or classical ideas is a guy named James Shaw. Uh, I've referenced him a few times on this podcast but in case, I think I talked about him for the E.F. Schumacher Guide for the Perplexed um, book. He wrote, I think Shaw wrote an intro for that book. Anyway, uh, James Shaw, uh, uh, he's a, uh, a Catholic priest. He taught uh, political philosophy at Georgetown University until a couple years ago. Uh, he is 90 years old, um, so old fellow. And he has written a bunch of books, which um, I've only read a few of them. But another another sort of learning is very good, and then he has one about um, a student's guide to liberal education, which is also very good. But the one I'm focused on today is um, the life of the mind that we'll be going into. Um, so the only reason I, I bring up these two different ways of accessing the classics is um, I don't know, like I, my Don Quixote story is I think a lot of people's experience of you go to a book and you think, I'm going to read this book, I'm going to love this book. But then you get to it and you're like, actually, it's 1,400 pages and it's really hard to read and it's going to take me a long time. And a year and a half later, I'm like, the two big books I'm reading right now are Don Quixote and The Brothers Karamazov. Like, that's going to take a while to get through, right? Um, and so um, I think that's a lot of people's experience is that you go to it, you think you're going to get through it really easily, um, but you're not and it's really hard. So it's helpful to have guides into these books. Um, yeah, I think of the same way that Dante had Virgil to guide him through the Inferno. Um, and then is it Beatrice who takes him from Purgatory and then on up? Um, that we need guides to, to come along and help us access these old ideas. So Shaw is someone who does that for me. Cool. So Life of the Mind is the name of the book. He also wanted to call this The Splendor of Discovery is another title he wanted to give this book, which doesn't that sound like a delight? Makes sense. Oh, this is the coffee that's making noise. Yeah, I'm hearing the coffee maker hiss a little I bit. I turned it off. Anyway, the splendor of discovery is what he's talking about. And so um, he is, much of it is autobiographical, him talking about his journey into loving, um, loving learning, loving reading and loving new ideas. 
And we covered a lot of that on the university podcast, mm-hmm. so I'm not going to uh, rehash all of that. Um, he has an intro where he makes fun of people who ask if his book is practical, and he says no. Um, everything he talks about is going to be quite useless, but useless does not mean it does not have value. Uh, so with that, he goes into the main book. So chapter five on the consolations of illiteracy. Uh, AJ, I believe you recently had read The Republic. you remember how far you got in The Republic? Mm, a little over midway. I, I haven't had a chance to go back to it, and I've supplanted it with a few other books. I plan to go back to it this summer. And then, Graham, you have also read The Republic. I have read The Republic, but I have not read it since probably undergrad. Or no, I think I had to go back to it um, in a master's uh, uh, philosophy um, seminar. Okay. So in this chapter, chapter five, on the consolations of illiteracy revisited, uh, Shaw starts off with this idea from Plato in The Republic that, well, I'm going to get us there as a group of hosts. So we have talked a few times about how the books that we are reading with our students are a feast. That's a metaphor that we've used a few times, correct? We have. A nom-nom feast. But is that feast always recognized by the students? No. Okay. Why is that? Because it takes time to get taste. Yes. Yeah, it takes... I, th- I think that's a good analogy. It takes, I, I didn't know what, you know, what beers I like until I've tried yeah. a lot of different beers. Or right. think about when you're a kid and your parents were like, we're taking you someplace really fancy and we're going to, f- you're going to have food that's really fancy. And then they give you like raw beef. What's mm-hmm. that dish called? Um, steak tartare. tartare. And yeah. it's raw beef with a raw egg in it. And you're like, that's, there's, that's not good. That's a joke. Mm-hmm. Like someone's playing a joke on me, and then you eat it, and it tastes gross because you're, you know, twelve. But then there's some something happens where when you're older, if you just sort of stick with it, you just sort of realizes that realize that there are textures and nuances and flavors, and I don't know. It's just it t- it takes time, and you have to want it. Yes. The other, the other I think thing AJ's I... beer analogy is great. Same with with whiskey for me. My dad would uh, would give me um, he really great scotches and whiskeys, and I tried it, and I hated it, but I really wanted to like it because mm. I wanted to like it. And now I like it. But how did you know it was worth doing that? Well, mainly it's because I love my dad. Okay. Oh, that's a, and I wanted to be like him. I think the other part is that it's a it's a big puzzle. Western culture in the Western canon is a big, you know, understanding Plato. You have to understand how he connects to everything else. And understanding Dante is tough unless you understand a bunch of other stuff. So it's when you're entering into that world, you're it's like handing the students a single puzzle piece. Mm. It's not going to be interesting until they see the rest of the puzzle. And so they have to gain a few more pieces before they start to make those connections and can see any piece of the puzzle kind of come together. Can you say, so what would those pieces be? Would they be more books that they read? Would it? I think it depends on what you're talking about, right? For for any discipline, there is a grammar to the different pieces of that discipline. Like for science, I have to know what a vacuum is before I can understand absolute zero, right? Mm -hmm. And I have to know a few other things before I can understand what dark matter is. Like I can't understand the better pieces of science until I understand the smaller pieces of science. And the same is true with literature. I cannot fully understand Dante without understanding a bunch of other things first. I I definitely can't fully understand the Aeneid without knowing Homer because that's what it was written as a model, right? As a a successor. Yeah. Yeah, I'm also thinking that when we... Or, I mean, AJ, you're the one who actually teaches it, that when you teach ninth grade English, you pick certain books to be what they read in that ninth grade class. Graham, you pick certain books to be in that 10th grade class. But there's mm-hmm. more ancient literature, AJ, that you could pick for your class, but you, there's a reason you don't pick it, right? Are there any, like, 
Can you think of an example of why you didn't pick certain books? So like, why is the Aeneid not something that you read? Or we used to. Yeah. It's, I mean, now it's time constraints. We just don't have enough time. Yeah. We often don't have enough time for the books that we have. I could easily spend the entire year on just the Iliad and, and the Odyssey together, which might be a bit of a drag yeah. at the end of it. Right? Part of it is picking books that are appropriate to the age level. Mm -hmm. And part of it is time constraints. And like we used to read Aeschylus and... Really, I could give them the same information in a lecture, and the rest of that, all of the themes about horror and pain and suffering, that just, just goes right over their heads, right? Yeah. They're, they're ninth graders. They, they haven't known a lot of those things, at least not usually. So so, so th that is the point I was trying to get to, and so well done. you, AJ, you now have a million points, <laughs> and Graham, you have a hundred, so catch up. The America wins again? America wins again. We're... Um, Clearly, this is not Wait, what? Uh, so Plato makes the same point, book seven of the Republic. Um, I'm reading from Life of the Mind right now. One of the most sobering passages in Plato is found in book seven of the Republic, wherein he suggests that it is possible to learn or be exposed to things too soon, or that it is impossible to mm. learn many things if we begin the project of learning them too early in life. This is definitely counterculturally even shocking. And he goes on from there. Um, and I think there's something to this, like that there are ideas that they're not ready for. And so there's a reason that they read Great Expectations as a senior and they don't read it as a freshman. Mm -hmm. There's a reason they read uh, Dorian Gray as a senior and not as a mm -hmm. freshman. Um, some of that might be just like the appropriateness of the material, but even the themes they won't connect with as well. Yeah, they're not. I don't think they're ready for Dorian Gray as yeah. a freshman. Mm -hmm. It'll seem the the horrible things in Harry or Henry, Henry, Lord Henry, Henry. Uh, are... They, delightful to right, a freshman. They're delightful to a freshman. They're easy to take as life mottos and only as a senior or someone older do you recognize that they're, he's pretty much the devil. Yeah. Right? It's very attractive, but very terrible. Yeah. Um, so, but what would happen? So, no, let's continue with that then. So if you were to read Dorian Gray with them, you think that they would be attracted to the character of Lord Henry? They think he's the hero or, I don't know, miss the point of the book? They would. They would, would think... I think they would be attracted to both the person of Dorian Gray and Lord Henry. They're clever. They're funny. They're always the life of the party. They have great things to say that about every topic of life. They seem dangerous. They seem fashionable. And, I mean, really that's the point of the book, that those things are not worth pursuing at the expense of your soul. Yep. But that's easy to miss. And at, by the time I would tell them that at the end of the book, if they hadn't really been paying attention, it wouldn't be enough to counteract the attractive weight of Henry and Dorian. Yeah. Just like, you know, when, and I think that it's the same problem that hits them with the internet. The internet is an attractive, beautiful place that can be funny, yeah. can be new and novel. It's an endless wealth of information, but only after interacting with it for so long do you realize that it is a dark, dark place and that you caters are, to your basest desires. And you are learning things a lot sooner than you should be Yeah, when, when you have complete sort of unfettered access to the internet. Man, Graham's like you wrote this book. The best things often take time, but we are loath to admit it, let alone to wait till we are ready for them. The modern world opens too many flowers much too soon, really to appreciate them in their full beauty. Um, I guess this is taking it from more of a positive aspect, but you're saying like that there are also vile things that they're... Sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could talk about Human sexual, you can talk about sex, sex right. sexuality and how many kids are, you know, the, the staggering numbers of kids who are looking at pornography at early ages. Yeah. Like that is not a benign thing. That is a, if, if it is happening to generations, it is shaping understandings of everything. Yeah. And, and um, what fascinates me is even in the classical world, oh man, I, sh I just doing this off the top of my head. There was, a strong, there was a strong correlation between like indulgence in sex 
and more a stronger propensity to violence, hmm. um, uh, a violence among like uh, a, the sort of the polis. Mm-hmm. Um, I, ha- I have to go back and look at that. I think it's coming down to like the bacchanalias and the going off into the mountains and uh, engaging in like orgies and stuff. Anyway, this he is, is, he is referring to the the traditions of Bacchus, yeah. the the wine mm-hmm. god, and how they would the bacchanals, these sort of drunken orgy parties. Yeah, they would have those as a way to worship the wine god in ancient Greece. And but so then the devotees these, of right. this were often incredibly violent, and they uh, they were, I believe they're the ones that tore Orpheus in, into pieces. Yeah, violence I, yeah. violence is closely tied to all of these. I mean, when everyone is drunk and free and wild, crazy things happen. Yeah. Anyway, that's just. Um, every time I, you sort of, uh, in, in sort of the modern discourse about, about, uh, internet pornography and we had a student last year do a senior thesis on it. And he said, we have correlations. We don't yet know how to talk about causations, but we have strong correlations between like pornographic exposure and violent tendencies, especially stretched out over long periods of time. And I always think about like, well, that's not a new thing. Like we mm. knew this correlation three thousand years ago. We just we still don't know how to put those pieces together. But there anyway. Yeah. Just thinking about understanding things at too early an age or or or, um, or being exposed to things where before you have the the capacities to filter or understand. Yeah. Or the yeah the ability to resist temptation even. I mean mm-hmm. that's so um, before that's trained up in a person. Yep. Mm-hmm. So um, just to follow up with the Dorian Gray analogy, it's possible to read a book and get the wrong message from it. And that is a danger of a book. But there's another danger of reading a book before you're ready for it. And this is what I experienced in my first time reading Great Great Expectations when I was in high school. Uh, I thought the book was really boring, and I didn't want to read it. And the only reason I read it was because my grade was attached to it, and I wanted to get good grades. And so I read it, and then I hated it. And then I was like, I hate Charles Dickens. Like, man, this is a horrible book. Bye. And then never thought about it again. Uh, And then came back to it uh, as a part. uh, Veritas Academy offers these... um, Great books, reading uh, reading groups with uh, parents and teachers at Veritas, and we read Great Expectations last year, and I was super not excited to read that book because I thought I hated it. But then I read it and was like, delightful. I, like I loved this book. Like um, it's hilarious. It, 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 there's a humor to it, and then there's um, uh, the story um, that just lined up with a lot of experiences that I was going through at that time, um, having come from um, a corporate job before coming to Veritas, and like the story. Um, that Pip is going through over the course of his life, I really like identified and understood what it was talking about. Mm. You're, a black, I, you're a blacksmith. I was a blacksmith. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you you got, have some, you know, anonymous donor yep. that sends you a bunch <laughs> yeah. of money. Old lady. Yeah, yeah. And you have to furnish a horrible apartment with yep. really nice furniture. That's it. Um, and then are you in love with a rich girl? And there it is. <laughs> hi, hi, Sarah. Um, so, uh, um, so like, there's just all these things that like I was ready for that book a year and a half ago in a way that I wasn't ready for it. Uh, 12 years, whenever I read it. Mm -hmm. I think it was 12 years ago, 14 years ago, whatever. Um, And so what is the other danger of being exposed to a book too early? You You might be taught to hate it. You might be taught to despise either that book specifically or learning broadly if you're exposed too early to an idea. I think those are the two dangers that, uh, that Shaw is discussing and that Plato, that Shaw says Plato is pointing to in the Republic. Um, Do you have any comments on that second one? Um, We talked the last episode I led on university, we talked about these kind of like awesome moments of learning to love learning. But I'm wondering if you had a moment where you were like, learning actually kind of stinks. Oh, man. So I directed all of my this sucks ire towards. So in Canada, in our public school system, a portion of our reading has to be Canadian. Yeah. 
And so that to me was always just to like, the teacher would say, all right, here's our Canadian <laughs> book. And it's like, it's about snow and snow is a metaphor for death. And you're like, all right. Um, so to me, I always, I always like fixed my, ugh, this is stupid. I don't want to learn or know this stuff towards these Canadian books that I had to read. And I've gone back and I've reread some of them, and some of them, and I, and I reread them and I disliked them, but not because, for the reason of being like a 17 year old, but just for other reasons, just not liking the book or whatever. But there's other ones that I've read and I was like, oh, this is actually really nice. Mm. So, um, uh, I don't know. I think I've always, this may not, this may be wishful thinking as I look back, but I think I've always had a little bit of a, uh, I must not get what is so good mm. and you, instead you, you of saying and instead of saying there's something wrong with this book i think i've always said ah there's just something i'm not getting man i must not be getting something you, and i want to and and as i got older like i wanted to get something uh and i uh, i think i talked about a couple podcasts ago where being in a philosophy class where everyone was yep. using the language and the only reason i wanted to learn that language was to be in the group but then once i learned the language I could have cared less about the group, and I now I had the thing that I wanted to learn. So, um, I really do think there's like an attitude and a disposition. Yeah. I mean, we like we offer education, but you have to receive it. Yeah. And and some and sometimes you have to receive it in spite of your appetites. You have to you know, you have to want to like the gross weird French food, mm -hmm. and then eventually you're like, this is actually really amazing. Yeah. Um, which brings me to a thought. So I remember reading an article, or maybe it was a book, and they were talking about like these French children, and um, and there were these like seven-year-old. This this American who was living in France. She was at I think her friend's house, and they have little French kids, and the French children were very calmly and enjoyably eating um, like really stinky cheese. Mm. And we're just talking, you know, oh, I want the, I want the, uh, um, the stinky cheese. The, I want the brie, I want the brie or whatever. Yeah. And the mom, the American mom was thinking like, I can't even get my child to eat like plain macaroni. Mm -hmm. How is this child like craving brie cheese? And she just sort of chalked it up to the fact that like, it's just genetically French. Mm -hmm. But then she, it was really bugging her. So she looked into it and she realized that at the schools, or the, the it's called maternelle, which is like uh, French daycare. Mm. It's um, when before you even hit grade school, all these kids are going to daycare, generally. And at this daycare, they gave lunch, and you were not allowed to snack. You were not allowed for your parents to bring uh, extra food in there. That you had to eat what was given to you, or you didn't eat. And they have just said, "This is where we're going to teach French children to love French mm. things," and they just gave them French food, and it was like. Here's brie cheese, and if you don't like it, like, buckle up for sadness because you're just only <laughs> going to have brie cheese. And then eventually the kids, you know, like it. And I think this author said that she had these French children over to her house, and she had, like, craft singles in her fridge and fed it to them, and the kids were like, this is not cheese, right? Like, this is <laughs> – I don't know what this is, but this isn't cheese. Why and, is this plastic on my plate? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So there's something about, like – not being able to offer them other things mm. um, so that they're forced to love cheese, uh, fr good French cheese. But then you get into problems of like, how far is a school, you know, how far do we do that? You know, we can't not Sorry, what do you keep think, our kids exposed from stuff. But what do you think the alternative is that 
what I think I hear you saying is that um, we're a boarding school and we like <laughs> no. Oh no no! Like you, the trick you, is to force feed it to them until they like it. But you're, in a sense, you're, um, this is too strong of a word. But you want to starve them from something else so that they are hungry when they get to the book. Yeah. Isn't that what you're saying? And you can't because they're coming in and what is the thing? That all is? they want is to like be done with this class so they can go home and play Fortnite mm. or play something else that is. Does, that is, you know, sort of uh, an enjoyable sensory experience, whereas... Or if they have any taste, Dark Souls. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Whereas, you know, so, I don't know. You can't just, like, shame them and say, you guys are barbarians. Um, you should like what's put in front of you. You, so, you have to make them enjoy weird, it weirdly by showing enough. them things that, that they can... Uh, you need to give them entry points that they can get through. Mm. Mm. That's interesting. So uh, weirdly enough, when we were doing Beowulf recently in class, a one of the ways that it found purchase in my ninth graders is they were like, this is just like Skyrim. <laughs> and they had just learned about the Romans and they're like, the empire in Skyrim is like the Roman empire. Yeah. And the Jarls are like, the, are like Hrothgar. And they were like making all these big connections. They're like, I thought they had totally made up everything in Skyrim. Mm. They're just thieves. Yeah. And they were going through this moment of cultural connection between what they had known, Skyrim, great game, by the way, and and the things that they had been reading. And so that's an entry point for them, sure. right? Connecting them to modern culture. And I think there's something to be said for, one, asking students to suspend their ire, right? They come into my class not wanting to do things we ask them to do yeah. or read big books. Right? It just takes a lot of time. It's hard. It's And that's not something that comes naturally. And it, you, you have to ask them for their forbearance. Say, hey, Please don't just hate these out of the gate. Give them a chance and know that the first two-thirds are not going to be that enjoyable. Mm -hmm. The payoff comes at the end. Yep. Many of them are not willing to do that. But if you ask, and sometimes they'll say yes, sometimes you can teach them to love it. And the other thing is to make sure that you're connecting things that are appropriate for their age. Right? Mm -hmm. Some of the deeper things going on in the Iliad won't connect with them. They've never had to go to war. Right? They've right. never been in a situation where they have to risk their lives and see no reward for it. That's just not going to hit right yeah. or you know wonder what their situation is at home with a wife and child they don't know that yet mm -hmm. but hopefully when they do they can think back and identify with odysseus it'll, it'll give them an entry point rather than mm -hmm. trying to give them everything like in your fancy french place right they're not giving them a four hundred dollar french cuisine mm -hmm. they're giving them the basics mm -hmm. right brie cheese brie is ubiquitous it's mm -hmm. everywhere but it's it's an entry point into greater things. Mm -hmm. Are those when, the intro points you're talking about? Yeah, and I think when they make that connection, oh my goodness, this is just like Skyrim. The teacher, so AJ is now in a, like, very, I don't know, precarious is the wrong word, but he's at a very important inflection point because how the teacher takes that moment is going to either slam the gate shut and they're not going to go inside or it's going to usher them through. If you say Skyrim's a stupid game for babies, we're talking about literature, then they're going to be like, well, okay, this is stupid. But you can't just be like, yes, Skyrim and Beowulf are on the equal right. are on equal uh, uh, planes of enjoyment, and because it's not, because uh, you know, because Skyrim is way more fun. Yeah. No, wait, no, wrong takeaway. <laughs> no, no, no. no. Yeah. So <laughs> delete this you part. Have this no. moment where you say, okay, good. They're, they've got a connection. There's like a little hole in the armor, uh, but now we need to drive it home so that they like have the thrill of. Killing the book. I don't know. I've lost my metaphor. Um, well, the thrill of learning. Like, the thrill, yeah. This is, so the reason it's called the mm -hmm. life of the mind. Again, he wanted to call it the joy of discovery. Mm -hmm. Like there's a joy in learning that is unique to learning as opposed to other things. Entertainment is a lesser form of enjoyment mm -hmm. than learning is. Is a piece of Shaw's argument. I it, think it I th flips a dongle you already have rather than giving you a new one. Yeah. What? <laughs> I mean. 
So entertainment can only reach those parts of you that are already established, right? Those things oh, you already know, sure. yes. right? Learning gives you a new, I, I want to say like a, a new sensation button. Yeah. Like Skyrim only connected with my students in a certain way up until they've read Beowulf and they know about the Roman Empire. And yeah. now when they go and replay Skyrim, they can think, oh, this is... It connects with them in new ways, right? There are new entry points. It makes them a more complex individual. Like, it's the difference between having an apartment with one door and having a mansion with multiple doors, yep. right? Things that they enjoy can now come in through those multiple doors and windows, mm -hmm. and there are m many more rooms for enjoyment rather mm -hmm. than a single entry point that they're just happy because they get to kill stuff and see skellies, skellies yeah. right? So, yeah, so part of it is that it's good that they're connecting with it, and so it's not just an old book that they have to read. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I feel Graham's tension of like, you don't want to affirm it too much. Yeah. Now, but now sort of assessing success is kind of an interesting thing because I, I think of Paradise Lost. So we have a, sort of an epic two-part Paradise Lost test that they have to do. And it really is testing like, do they understand the, the complex iambic pentameter? And can they sort of like pull out ideas from, from complicated texts? And can they answer sort of theological questions that we've talked about in class? And that's a great assessment. But I know that in 10 years... Um, the only thing that they are going to remember about Paradise Lost is whether they said, man, I really remember enjoying that book or, man, I really hated that book. Yeah. And the only way – so I feel like I have successfully taught that book if I get the feeling that when the student leaves, they say, I really enjoyed that book. And if you say why, they could – even if they say, I don't really know why, they usually say it's the way Donaldson taught it, which is very flattering, but it's not – it's not true. Um, it's that I just sort of showed them things that were in the book that they need to be able to get to on them by themselves, but they they can't yet because it's sort of a hard hard thing to do by themselves. But if I know that they can leave feeling like there's so much there, I really enjoyed that. I can't even put into words like why I enjoyed that. They probably will even forget that they wrote a test, but if they look back and they remember that feeling, because you remember feelings way more than you remember facts. You remember yeah. how you how a teacher made you feel about it about a topic. Yeah. Then I feel like the soil is a little more ripe for when they're older and out of our responsibility and in there in college or even post-college when they say, I actually want to learn things. On their own. When they get to the point where they're like, I actually want to learn stuff, they'll say, when did I enjoy learning something? Oh, when I read Paradise Lost, I remember feeling like there's a whole giant world of books that I don't understand that I, f for a moment I felt like I could enjoy it. And then they'll go do that. Because if they don't do that, then they're just going to go to the low-hanging fruit and they're going to say, like, Skyrim's got a great story, mm. which is true, but it's... it's An inferior story to it's, yeah. any, any it, classic, right? Uh, yeah. And also, archery's super busted in that game. <laughs> okay, yep. Hey, so actually, Graham, this chapter is written as kind of an opposition to the point you just made. So what you just said is awesome for those who have great teachers like A.J. Hannenberg and Graham Donaldson for ninth and 10th grade English and Catherine Ball for 11th grade English, and then all three of them for senior English. Like, So you all will hopefully instill that in the students that go through Veritas, but not everyone has awesome teachers like you all, and that is the, the constellation of a literacy, which we'll get to in a second. Mm. Uh, just a quote while we're on, just to kind of wrap up the great books, being exposed to ideas too early part of this. Um, James Shaw says, Today, we sometimes seem to think that the great books can be learned in college or in high school or in grammar school or even in preschool. After all, most of them are already online. Most of them, the books, are already online. Um, I've seen a rather impressive great books program developed for homeschooling at the high school level, at which period in our lives we need to read much literature and poetry, play games, learn music, memorize, and yes, speak. 
but there is a sense in which we may not be ready for the great book's deepest teachings at such a young age. He's talking about high school there. Um, he says elsewhere, I don't remember where, where Plato says that people, people don't, people are not wise, are not capable of being wise until at least 50, which I thought was really funny. Um, but yeah, but there's a sense in which, um, someone in high school might be unprepared for, um, for certain books. And that's why we separate 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th. But even I, as a senior, was not ready for a book that was taught as a senior book. Um, and so hopefully they'll do what Graham said and come back to that book later. Um, I have this experience every time I teach Romeo and Juliet because the kids feel like they they all have currency with Romeo and Juliet. I too am in love. My parents <laughs> right. just don't understand. Um, and I, to me, that is a that is a feeling that is so far gone in my in the past. Like that sort of just the problem of Romeo and Juliet is not what I feel. But every time I teach it, I am always struck with Father Lawrence and the position that he is in, where he is with these sort of emotional kids and he's trying to figure out how to guide them in a way without disaster and it ends up being it, a disaster. Poorly, right? And I try to c communicate to the kids, to the students. Uh, I say like, oh man, I find. I find this speech of Father Lawrence incredibly convicting as a teacher. And I say it. And the kids are like, some kids are like, oh, it's interesting. Some kids are like, whatever. Like, I'm in love. Yeah. And then, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but, and, uh, but isn't that a great You point? don't get me either. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but isn't that a great thing about the about, about these books? That, yeah. Like, each of us can get something different from it. And mm -hmm. it's all from the same book. And it's all based on the book. Mm -hmm. I don't know. That kind of makes Romeo and Juliet a better book. Yeah. So then there are those tiny little moments where we're all students. Yeah. And that's... Um, uh, and, our, and I try to, like, m when that moment is happening, make it explicit so that the students feel like they're not just, like, being taught down to. Well, you're learning alongside them. Yeah. And all of us are. And that's hard to do because learning is uh, a vulnerable thing. Yes. And no one wants to be, no one wants to be, like, vulnerable in front of 15-year-olds. Right. They're vicious. But we kind of have to be. <laughs> yeah. To, if. If we're going to model that for the students. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so um, so we're all talking about if teachers are great, but not all teachers are great. And so Shaw tells this story about going to a, like a used bookstore and finding um, this old Saturday Review Reader. And he bought it for 35 cents, and it had this essay in it by Phyllis McGinley. And the, the, that essay is called The Consolations of Illiteracy. Mm. The name of this cha chapter is On the Consolations of Illiteracy Revisited, because he's thinking we got about our this story. essay. Um, it, uh, quoting Shaw, it was a charming essay that began with these somewhat shocking words. There is something to be said for a bad education. Mm. Um, and she goes on from there. She, she was essentially educated in, like, the one-room schoolhouse, um, which you know, whatever we joke about, that it's like all grades being taught in one building. It's one teacher teaching all of those, a not particularly well-read teacher. And so as a part of this, uh, Phyllis McGinley never read many, she didn't read many great books as a part of her formal education. She went off to college. She was, she tested out of the English credit somehow. And so literally never had to read um, a good book in college. Um, and so then she's reflecting after college that she doesn't have any baggage associated with these books. She wasn't forced to read, uh, um, name a book, um, uh, Paradise Lost. She wasn't forced to read Paradise Lost. And so she could come to it with fresh eyes and like, only read it for the enjoyment of the book itself, not for, I have to read this because... I need a grade. I need a grade. Um, there, where's the quote? He has this part about how people hate stuff when it's assigned to them, and that's a sign of the fall. <laughs> this is a really fun quote. Sorry. So we should make English optional? Well, I wanted to talk with you about this. I know, Graham, you're going to agree with that off the well, bat. Well, I'm of two minds. Give me, give me one of them. Give me both um, of them, actually. Uh, well, 
You need to be forced to do stuff before you like it. Yeah. Some, uh, uh, yeah. Or the, the, the Chesterton quote, like, um, one of the great truths of sort of fairy tales is you wear a mask. If you wear a beautiful mask, your face will eventually grow into it. Mm. Like, so the, the, like the fake it till you make it kind of thing. Like if you, you kind of at some point need to be exposed to something you may not enjoy, but then it's a good thing and maybe something will clip your soul on the way and take you along with it. Yeah. Um, but then on the other hand, um, um, you want, we are offering an education, we need you to receive it, we need the student to receive it, and if students are not receptive, um, if you're in a class where the, the sort of the, um, there is a critical mass of arm folding, eye rolling, I'm here to fight, learning tooth and nail, um, um, then you're offering your pearls to the swine, right? Like, mm. you not no learning will no learning was done that day. Yeah, um, and so that's just a that's just not fun as a teacher. I bet. Um, and you also feel like I don't want even want to expose you to this because right. you're you're just gonna you know um, uh, be uncharitable towards it, and like Dante deserves better than you. But he, which is but, but also, then, then then you go back and you say ah, but you're a child, and we're trying to raise oh, you, and this is I you know, this say, is a, I was gonna say it's also you being vulnerable with that piece, and so yeah. it's not only I'm showing you Dante, and Dante deserves respect because of the Western mm-hmm. canon. It's this is a book that's had an impact on and me, and I love it, and you're telling me you think this book mm-hmm. is and this book's trash. Yeah, and the, yeah, that's um, not fun. This is the quote I was looking for. This sort of miseducation, so again, not essentially not having to read good books, she thought had a certain hidden advantage. Students often do not read or want to read. Such is the perversity of our nature because they are requ- because they are required to read, because they are assigned to read. I do not know whether this reaction is one of the effects of the fall, but it is often the case. Almost none of the, uh, she goes into, she essentially had no baggage at reading the books. Um, but once she discovered such books, she read them excitedly because she wanted to, because she found them delightful. Um, but that's not the case for everybody. I, I didn't read the classics because somehow I dodged all of them. Mm-hmm. I went. I was in honors English in high school, and we read a whole bunch of weird stuff. I think we read a little bit of Shakespeare, but other than that, I never, I never hit any of these great books. And then mm-hmm. I tried to read them post-college, and because I had no guide, because I had no background, I hated the Iliad. I suffered through it. I picked up Paradise Lost and got a chapter in it and was like, what is this gobbledygook? I couldn't make heads or tails of it. Yeah. I mean, there is there is an element of this that says we, the, these were paths I could not enter because I didn't even know where to find the gate. Yeah. There was no guide. There was no gatekeeper. It'd be like going to Yellowstone and then disregarding the entire trail map and then just going wherever you wanted just to. Just taking a direction. And yeah. it's not a perfect analogy because in Yellowstone, you're going to end up somewhere beautiful, but you might never see but, El Cap. Right, you might exactly. miss. You'll miss something. You'll miss. You'll miss all the good things. Yeah. Uh, so so I, I could not have appreciated these had I not come to Veritas and then had a guide, shout out to Miss Maines, who, who taught me the Iliad along with her students, and I learned it, and I loved it, right, because I had a guide. Can I tell you, so this is my complicated takeaway from this chapter, is that James Shaw, um, as I was being introduced to the classics, was a very important guide to me in that his books helped me understand the ideas of classics. So that's one thought. So I'm agreeing, I'm 100% agreeing. Gotta with have everything. a Virgil. Yes, exactly. Gotta have someone to help you access those, or it's very helpful to have someone to help you access those. But not everyone has those guides or comes across those ideas or has a teacher like you or Graham who, who guides them through those classics. So, like, I don't know. There are many people who listen to this podcast. And so some of you might not have had those great teachers when you were in high school. All hope is not lost for you to access these classics. There is an easy solution to all of this. 
Listen to the teachers pod. more. Oh, there it is. Okay. <laughs> so that you'll have better teachers? Is that what well, you're that's saying? Well, oh. that's what I'm thinking, right? If we, had, if we had better teachers who cared about it, who read the books themselves, yeah. who were connected with... And I mean, obviously, there's other things that have to happen. We have mm-hmm. to change the way that education approaches everything, right? Yeah. And try to reconnect it with the past. But if, if teaching was a more lucrative position and perhaps more respected, right? We pay... We pay homage to teachers in the same way that, you know, scripture talks about people honoring God with their mouths, but not with their actions, right? We say it's the most important thing people can do, and then no one wants to do it, and we also don't pay them well, right? Mm-hmm. It is it is mouth lip service. It is not actually respecting teachers in the way they should be respected. And part of that is because we didn't respect our own teachers. Right. We, I had bad ones. You had bad ones. <laughs> sure. Graham had bad teachers. I had maybe a couple that I remember that were really good, yeah. but we I don't think we expect out of our teachers, the kind of insights that should come from a teacher. And because we don't expect that, we don't pay them well. And then because we don't pay it well, we get low quality teachers. And it's an epidemic, you know, just in this nation. Yeah. I just don't, even if, if you paid teachers more, I just don't think a public school would teach English the same way that we do at Veritas. Um, well, that's what I'm saying. It's not, it's not a simple solution, sure, right? Sure. It's, we have to get people that care and love these things and, one way to do that is either to pay them more. Another one is to change the face of education. Yeah. I don't know. I also think that you want people motivated by the teaching, um, not by the So money. paying them more would is kind of a double-edged sword in that sense. Right. But you yeah. want to reward people. It's, it's complicated because you want to reward people who love the books, but you don't want people to be there for the money. Mm-hmm. Is that? Anyway. And there are other subjects other than English, I should clarify. So then provide, like, housing for the teachers. Hey, and, this is a great and idea. they can live on school and you can really get the ones that want to. Anyway, well, maybe, maybe the trick is to catch flies with both honey and ointment. I don't know what else Keep catches, catches flies. What, what, what's the, well, what's my, the my point is that... Honey is the we, money. We, yeah, we can catch them with money, <laughs> and then you've got the fly, so you yeah. can teach them to love the stuff, or yeah. you can catch them with the love and then reward them when they arrive. And right? you catch honeys by being flies. <laughs> what just happened? Thank you for listening <laughs> to Classical This is going to be our last <laughs> episode of Classical Stuff. I'm so sorry, okay. everyone. No, um, um, so, yeah. this spawned another thought, and that was the idea of sort of the master-apprentice relationship ah. of education. Oh. And... Um, so, for example, I'm no. the master. Yeah. <laughs> Graham is Graham's the apprentice. What am I? But, but the <laughs> idea that, is, like, no. um, um, that as the apprentice, there's the possibility of the master rejecting you and you're not mm. being allowed to be there anymore. Yeah. Like, so think of, you know, uh, Yoda and Luke. Mm-hmm. Like, he's too old to, to complete the training. Or, or you think of any, think of any kung fu movie where, like, the young kung fu guys climbing to the top of the mountain and the old guys at the top, like, sitting cross-legged and Chuck and refuses him. refuses him to train him. There's, if the it even student, mentions it in old painting manuals that you have to with with, right. uh, with an apprentice say you have to ad- adopt a tone with him, whichever tone is better, either mm-hmm. a nurturing one mm-hmm. or one that censures, mm-hmm. and basically make fun of him and mess with him until you he, like he demonstrates that he has the metal to mm-hmm. make it through your program. So yeah, in many ways, so there needs to so this kind of counteracts the the student that doesn't want to be there. Now, the the trouble is what we would probably if we did that kind of model, what we would probably get are masters of English, yeah. but what we wouldn't get is like an educated populace. Yes, a ubiquity or like sort of a, a, a homogeny of educated people. We wouldn't have everybody going through the educated uh, It'd over, be a new aristocracy. It would be which a is di- what Graham wants. So. <laughs> no, no, it would just be a different kind of it would be a different kind of thing. I think you can blend the two things together in that 12 years of high school is a, is a random number, or 12 mm-hmm. years of school is sort of this random number. Um, uh, lots, of, lots of ire gets thrown at 
um, schools that begin to separate students into different sort of tracks earlier. Mm -hmm. But there is kind of a wisdom to that where you say, like, you know, at 12, 13, uh, if, if the student really doesn't want to do higher level academics the way that it's being done in our English class, um, well, then, then there's, there's different tracks. What we've done instead is we said, no, everybody's going to get uh, 12 a 12-year of education, and then the style of teaching has changed. Um, Between high school to, and university? So then um, if you wanted to be crass about it, you could say that like we sort of watered it down so everybody – so we – or we've, we've created a system where everybody has to stay in it, mm. and so the, so the students that really don't want to be there – um, we've given them different kinds of carrot and sticks incentives to stay in grades, uh, college acceptance, uh, SAT tests. Uh, why, why do we have to do this? Because you're getting a test. Well, why? Because you need a grade. Well, why? So you can get into college. Well, why? So you can get a job. And then yeah. they're like, all right, so the only reason I can do this is I can get a job. If I can figure out a way to make money, I don't have to be here. Uh, <laughs> right? That's the logic that they go through. And I don't blame them for right. having that logic. I think that makes to to tons of sense. And lots are, of kids, you saying, are you saying it makes sense because we require them to be there for 12 years? Um, um, I'm saying it makes sense because at some level, as they're getting older and becoming more like adults, yeah. they feel like they're in a position where they can make decisions for themselves. And they can. And they can, yeah. and they, but they're not allowed to. And so that's frustrating. Yeah. And I think, and it is frustrating. I'd be frustrated. And on top I was of that, we are, we are enticing them with things that they can find elsewhere easier. That's right. right. Where our enticement is a good job, and if they can go and make... I don't know, 80,000 a year as a welder, and you or, can, because welding is a great profession. Yeah, go do that. Why, right. why in the world would they study the Iliad? Or a kid right? says, I can, learn how to pro I can learn how to code online for free, and if I can do it and I can make an iPhone app, hey, guess what? I just made you know $20,000, which is not unreasonable for apps. Right. None, I don't, to my knowledge, we don't have students at our school that are doing that, but I know the story of lots of developers here in in Austin, who that was their story in high school and college was they were in college. They didn't go to classes because they were making like 50K making iPhone apps in, you know, 2012, 2012 or whatever, you know, like just the, the heyday of of app making. So, and so so if the only enticement of education is job, then. Then if you can find a job. Why, yeah. Why, why, why not abandon is, education to do something we, else? It, yeah. I think in our we're in our 30s, except for Thomas. Except for me, sorry. Um, but I think even in our lifetime, by the time we're at 50s, 60s and retiring, we will have seen a massive tectonic plate shift in education, in public, and just sort of this, um, um, I don't want to call it popular education, but in not a specialized education of what we're doing at Veritas with a, with a really sort of separate pedagogy, but in the type of education that is... I guess for lack of public school education, is going to have to go through a real identity crisis because of the fact that it was designed to create workers in a world that is needing different kinds of workers now. Yep. Um, uh, information age, technology. You don't need, I mean, I don't think kids need to, you know, they don't need to be 12 years of school the way that we do it and then four years of college um, for some of the kinds of jobs that can lead to a middle class life out there, I, don't, I mean, but, it, but yeah. vocation is not the only is, thing we train mm, them on. Well, not at Veritas. Not at Veritas. Well, yeah. Well, our, well, our, I guess Graham's point is that 
the aim of education shouldn't be just work. But if it yes. is, but, but if it is, but if it is, then then we might why do we well, have English class? Yeah. Why do we have? Why do we even have? Which is why we're losing those yeah. arts and humanities at schools because there's the kids rightfully realize there's no real point if they're doing some other job. Why do we have seven years of um, history? Well, you know, why do we? And, th- and that's why people say, ah, then we have STEM classes, math, you know, and that that's why it makes sense yeah. because they are more practical. So I want to connect this to our listeners who aren't either teachers or active sure, students. Sure, sure, And And I'm wondering what the takeaway is here for, up. for those. Yeah, no. yeah. We all feel really passionately about the world of education because we're teachers and we're mired in it. But if you are a listener who is not a teacher, maybe the lesson is that if you read something in high school and you hated it, you know, there are ways to re-enter this world, sure, right? Yeah. You, you find a guide, you maybe put away that distaste you had when you were forced to read something, and then you sort of re-enter the world and maybe do it in a way that's a little more conscious than it was in high school, where you were thrown a whole bunch of disparate reading material. Like, I, I got American stuff. I got some older stuff. I got, I never even read Lord of the Flies, mm-hmm. but like Lord of the Flies, Flies Grapes of Wrath, uh, Out of the Dust, which by the way, I loathe mm-hmm. as a book. All of these things I had to read, but they didn't, because I wasn't taught history well, they didn't actually connect anywhere right. for me. It was just random stories. And so if you're re-entering the world of education, maybe maybe there's two lessons, right? Don't, don't look at education as a means to money, right? Because most educated men of the past would tell you that money is good only so far as it makes you independent and free. Um, and then come at it at a way that is conscious and accepting and put away your distaste for those things that you used to hate. Is that is that a good lesson to take away That's from great. this? Yeah, again, the the complication is that you probably do need a guide to get to the classics, but if you do not have that guide already, it's never too late to get to get back to these books, to get back... Um, and hey, boys, you found it. Welcome to the podcast. That's what we're here for. <laughs> <Yep>. um, <laughs> and ladies, sorry, didn't mean to be... Since consistent. we're at the end of the podcast, can I read a quote from this as a commonplace-ish thing? Sure. Um, it's just that... I don't know, just in um, thinking about when I came to love learning, it was not in the classes I took, but it was this moment of like um, reading something and then like loving it, just just that moment of enjoyment, uh, which again is what Shaw is talking about over the course of this book, the enjoyment of discovery. And so uh, McGinley, the person who wrote this um, on the Constellations of Illiteracy, the original essay, says, for all of my discoveries, nearly the most breathless was Dickens himself. How many of the educated can even suspect the delight of such a delayed encounter? She went through a stint of reading nothing but Dickens, and there's a long list of the books that she read. And then she says, It's consoling to know that the rest of the novels of Dickens are there waiting for me. None of them grown stale or too familiar for enjoyment. Um, I just love that. That experience of like of of loving literature. Um, the yeah. fun thing that is that most of Dickens' novels we don't read so much because they're like twelve hundred pages long. Oh, man. He has a ton of novels that he wrote that are enormous that go unread. Yeah. Um, Shaw is also perhaps famous for, uh, he, he, let, he loves to put out these lists of books to read, um, and they all sound like BuzzFeed articles. So his appendix one of this book is Shaw's 20 books that awaken the mind. <laughs> you won't believe number 20. <laughs> um, I've only ever read one of them, but uh, I'm sure they're a wonderful list. Um, if you're, if you're interested in learning more about Shaw, he gave a great, um, um, interview with Art of Manliness. Uh, if you just search for James Shaw, Art of Manliness, you'll find it. And then any of his books are, are a treat. So I implore them to you. Cool. So. And if you're looking for guides, remember that we, you know, we're educators mm-hmm. and we do this because we love it. So if you send us questions about 
a great book you're reading, we will try to get back to you. I mean, yeah. we're coming up in a pretty bu- busy season of the year, and we always have stuff going on, so it might be a little delay. But so send us questions and twenty dollars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we, if you, we would read those right away. <laughs> yes, we yeah. would. Yeah. But if you have, if you've got questions, we would love to guide you through the things that we love. At this yep. point, it's it is a labor of love for us. So enter in. Yeah, yep. come come and let us help help guide. All right, that's everything I have. You gonna close this out? So. Yeah, thanks for listening. This was Classical Stuff You Should Know. You can find us online at classicalstuff.net. We are also on Google Play and iTunes. I'm sure you know that already if you are listening to us. We're trying to get on Spotify, so Spotify, you're not listening. But if you are, <laughs> you know, help us help help a set of brothers out. Yep. And we've done the – did we have any classical stuff we got wrong? We never make mistakes. I thought that was our new policy. Um, I, because Miss Ball has stopped listening to the podcast, no, I'm just kidding. Um, we no longer get pointed out where we are mistaken. Um, we had someone who was salty about my correction on Augustine, but that's, that's actually how you say his name. So here we are. Mm. We so also I have looked someone it up, who is upset, and it's of, actually it doesn't really matter because oh yeah, it's so important. I, well, n- because his actual name is Augustinus. Yeah, and well, so to the reason we say Augustine is to preserve the penultimate emphasis on the syllable. So Augustinus, you put the emphasis on steen, mm-hmm. Augustine. Mm-hmm. And so when we, ch- when we Americanize it, we say August, Augustine, right? Augustine, yeah. And so really, if we were going to pronounce his name right, it'd be August, Augustinus. In the same way that, so Graham Donaldson is uh, um, dean of the House of Francis, he would be like a Francesco, wouldn't he? Uh, yeah. In the same way that our, our school is named Veritas, but the Latin pronunciation would we be, be Veritas. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So really, Which we're going to fix all of it. Students point out. So, so if we're going to be wrong, we might as well be more wrong? Is no, that, it oh. just... I. It's it is a it is a small preference that's trying to preserve the that pronunciation. Is right. That is accurate. That, yeah, yeah. Completely. It's not. There's no right or wrong. It's just trying to preserve something that you don't. Necess- we're America. We're changing it anyway. So, <laughs> so like, we might as well get it right. So you might right. as well do what you want, right? Wait, if you're what? gonna if you're gonna adapt uh, a recipe to make a different kind of cookie uh-huh. that you like better yep. because you can't use the kind of flour they were like change something else. Who cares? I'm gonna say Augustine because. I'm rock and roll. I'm going to say Augustine because I like to be right. So. All right. Anyway, <laughs> then on that note, uh, you can find us on Twitter at ColeSchoolStuff twits.com and send us emails if you want spread us around to your friends actually it would really help if you review us yeah and mm, that would be great i mean we don't Share get it with a friend we don't get any money from this but yeah. we do love spreading the word so if you like us spread us around and talk to us we like getting emails it kind of makes our day and that's it i i think that draws us to a close so thanks everyone we will see you next time ciao Bye.